This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. I'm Tao Ha, and I am a professor of sociology at Miracosta College. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thanks for coming on. Um, so what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Uh, today, um, man, it means so many things because uh, for me, uh, I think I've lived, uh, I guess I'm at midlife. <laughs> so, uh, so many decades and each time a generation passes, it means something different or you add on to your, your life experience. So it means that, uh, you know, as a refugee, there, you, I'm tied to war, right? I'm tied to conflict. Um, I'm tied to uh, thinking about my family and the uh, the journey of like trauma and healing, right? Um, and uh, it means trying to navigate uh, American life, right? As like different uh, ways of being, right? Being Vietnamese, being American, being Asian, being female, like so. Um, yeah, it means. Uh, I think the best way I would capture it is it means you have to navigate and you kind of figure yourself around in different spaces and different environments. And each of those have uh, nuances that you have to kind of figure out and so that you can find your place. I think when you're young, you're trying to figure out, you know, where you belong and right. who you are. And now you think you figured out, but really you haven't. <laughs> you're still figuring it out. <laughs> or at least I am. <laughs> I think we all, we all are. I think, um, I mean, that's probably why I do this podcast is to continually figure out who I am. It's a very selfish endeavor. So before I was ever introduced to you, I've heard about you for many years. I mean, um, it's like <laughs> the film community and sort of like the people that we exist in. So my friends, um, we exist in a, in a little bubble but we hear about names all the time. So throughout the years, you hear these names like Sea uh, Drift and uh, Dr. Tao. Um, but I also knew that uh, you came with a very different history than what my mind is used to, right? Because anytime I see a PhD that's attached to a name, I think of somebody in a, in a very classroom setting, somebody who's, you know, buttoned up. But I know that you come from a very different background than than what that represents to me, you know, all, traditionally all these years. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about uh, how you grew up and where you grew up? Yeah. And I just want to address real quickly, like what you just shared, because it happens. You're not the only one. Okay. A lot of times they see uh, folks have told me um, they saw the name Dr. Ha and they thought it was a man. Okay. When I get emails before we were putting pronouns in our bios, it was like, dear Mr. Ha, or, you know, some kind of male reference. So that's one thing that happens. And then, like you said, kind of button up, 
proper. I'm not saying I'm improper, <laughs> but you know, there's a, a yes, there's a history, there's a these life stories, right? That kind of don't fit the um, the narrative of like a, a general pathway for somebody who's um, a professor. So thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's, it's a pretty common um, thing that happens to me. So I grew up in Texas and I know that, you know, you're from California, right? And, yes. and growing up in Texas, I remember meeting people from California and they would say, oh, there's Asian people in Texas. There are Vietnamese in Texas. I'm like, yeah, a lot actually. Right. <laughs> and um, so I grew up in Houston. Uh, I came to the U.S. in 1975 with my parents, April 30th, fall of Saigon. My dad was a pilot. So we were very, very fortunate to, um, get out, uh, I mean, fortunate relatively, right? To like boat folks and um, other folks who came later um, and uh, moved around the country a little bit. You know, dad was looking for a steady job and we landed in Houston in 1978. And that's where I started school. That's where we bought like our first home, which my parents still have and still live in. And, um, you know, it's kind of like that working class neighborhood um it's the southeast part of town called south belt and that's pretty significant in, in a few stories down about that neighborhood uh but it's a lot of vietnamese uh, in that neighborhood and um yeah and so i i always remember growing up with a strong presence of vietnamese people around me um in my school there were maybe not elementary because i started there and there were few vietnamese at the time but as i got older and then through middle school and high school, a lot of Vietnamese. What, what did your, your father end up and your mother end up uh, working in? What industry? Yeah, so uh, my dad, he kind of started with late day labor, you know, like a lot of folks. I remember he told me a story about uh, working for a watermelon farm. Wow. And, and he and his buddies, these other pilots, right, that all landed in San Antonio. Um, the widow who, who sponsored us also sponsored five other uh, Vietnamese uh, pilots. So she's like all of us in, and she found different families to host us. Um, but these, uh, he and his um, pilot buddies worked for a well watermelon farm and they would like drop a watermelon once in a while, right? Cause if you drop it at bus, you get to take it home, right? So that's how they got watermelon. Um, but eventually we went to Houston because my dad found a job as a machinist. Uh, so he was, um, you know, training, uh, he took some classes and became machine, a machinist. My mom was a seamstress in Vietnam. And so she, uh, she fortunately found a job making like uh, sewing uh, uh, little baby t-shirts, you know, babies when they're born in the hospital, newborns, and they wear those little white t-shirts. She was uh, sewing those. And then an ophthalmologist in the hospital um, had, um, started his own practice and he asked the manager of that 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 seamstress team to recommend him uh you know one of her best uh you know seamstress and she was a korean lady and so she liked my mom another asian to another asian and she said you should talk to that woman and so he um he asked her to sew, sew a sample for a ophthalmologic eye patch so these eye patches that he designed for like cataract surgery glaucoma and I think it was like 1980 or something like that. And, and he gave her the contract and she did that ever since. So, wow. yeah. So my parents were manufacturing uh, um, uh, uh, hospital eye patches, um, orthopedic, eye, uh, ophthalmologic eye patches since 1980. And did your father remain a machinist? 
So he, uh, I think it was like in the late 80s um, and early, must have been late 80s, early 90s, there was an oil crisis in Houston and um, they were going to move him. So they were going to move him from the site, which was real close to our house, all the way up into like a north side town. His commute would have been like an hour. And so he quit and he asked the doctor, the eye doctor, hey, can I make the other part of this eye patch? Because it's two pieces. It's the metal eye shield with the holes in it so you can see through it. And then it's the, the cloth that's around it. And so my mom would sew the cloth. And so my dad asked the uh, uh, ophthalmologist, can I make the metal piece? Because I'm a machinist. So he's like, yeah, go ahead. So we invested in this big pulley machine, this stamp machine. So my parents are... Uh, they had the workshop in the garage. They converted the garage. And so they were always home um, working. That's a cool story. Yeah. It's um, hustling. The the idea of just uh, putting one foot right in front of the other, figuring out that uh, opportunity. Yeah. You know? But they never were apart from each other, which is why they always fought every day. <laughs> it's like no break from each other. <laughs> but that made an opportunity for you all to be together constantly though right yeah I, yes it, it, you know we were so privileged that we uh we ate as a family every night right my mom had the the, the luxury of, of of her own time to cook when she needed right um i think at one point it was really really busy for them and so she hired like this woman to come in and like uh, watch us after school and cook for us but we were a little brats because like my mom's cooking was really good. And this lady's cooking was like, <sighs> and so we told my mom, we're like, oh, do I know? And she's like, she tasted it. And I remember the woman made spaghetti and she freaking put sugar in it. I'm like, why would you put sugar in spaghetti? It was so sweet. And my mom tasted it. She's like, oh, this is bad. So she let her go and she say, okay, mom's going to cook for you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you did grow up. And I'm going to ask these questions because it kind of paints a, a picture of your childhood. But um, where did it go? Um, I don't want to say wrong, but where did it go sideways about hanging out with uh, certain groups of people in that part of the world? Um, you know, it had, it had a lot to do with life outside of the home. Um, you hear a lot of stories of... Um, kids that join gangs, kids that uh, uh, get into like delinquency because their home life is broken. And I want to reiterate that was not the case in my, my situation. Right. Now, were my parents strict? Uh, absolutely. Did they like, did we, did when we fat, like, did we get punished? Absolutely. My dad had no problem going to the backyard, pulling that switch, you know, from the tree and like whacking us a few times. My mom had no hesitation, like, you know, like smacking us around. So I'm not saying it was like, you know, peaceful, um, but, uh, but, but they were home. Um, they provided us like financially. Uh, I, we, we were fed. Right. Um, so, so I would, I would say the, the, the pull towards um, uh, gang life was um, because of life outside the home, the, the, the streets and the schools. And so you hear, all the Asian Americans who've ever like talked about their early childhood who've had who've been bullied, right? And and so that was part of, of that. You know, I was I, I was a girl, but I was not immune to being bullied. Um, but I was I don't I, I I can't remember when it was, but I snapped. And so 
I like I get into fights all the time. Uh, what, I was what, not gonna take it, right? How old were you when that started to happen? Mm, like middle school, sixth grade, wow. 12, 13, 12, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. So were there a lot of Vietnamese kids in your school or was that a racial thing mm -hmm. or? Um, it started off uh, like uh, the white girls picking on me, but as I got older, it was actually the Vietnamese girls that were like picking on each other or there were some bullies among the Vietnamese girls and, um, and they were picking on like the nice girls. And uh, I was friends with a couple, I was trying to be friends with everybody. And I just, I don't know, I didn't like it. I, I, I think I've always like uh, tried to stand up for the, 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 the weaker. underdog or the people being picked on. So I would get into fights with these girls that um, uh, were the bullies. And then, you know, you, you, those girls were the ones I think that when I reflect now and I remember, I know them, right? I remember them. They were the ones with the bad life at home. They were the ones with the broken homes. And so hurt people hurt, you know? Yep. And so they were bullying the other girls. And, um, and those, that crowd then grew up to be like the hardcore gangster girls dating the gangster boys. And so, you know, I felt like, oh, okay. If I'm going <laughs> to, I, I don't know. I, I was drawn to that grittiness, right? Because um, uh, it just became uh, the way things were in school. Uh, but in, keep in mind, I had good grades. I was on the volleyball team, so I was into sports. I remember my volleyball coach, like seeing me hanging out after school with the, um, these, you know, these boys that would come after school, all black gear, you know, their dropped cars with the loud, like we were playing like two live crew in the, in the parking lot. And and she pulled me aside the next day. She's like, I don't want you hanging out with them. Like you have a good uh, future ahead of you. And uh, if you, if you continue, if I see you continuing to hang out with them, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut you from the team, right? Cause that's not like model behavior. So before she could cut me, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, fine, you know, like I was down for my, my, my friends. So. Um, okay, let me, let me ask you this. I'm, I'm, right now listening to your story for the first time i am imagining a a girl who comes from a very uh stable family life and i'm imagining just you sort of drifting in and out of these and and being attracted to this like sort of like this uh, grittier lifestyle but I, i'm 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 wondering if you have like siblings or brothers or sisters that were also part of that ecosystem that 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 made you gravitate because i just can't imagine just like this girl who gets good grades comes from a decent loving family being attracted to that i just feel like it's there's more maybe cousins that are like in that space that draws you in as a clan and you all kind of partake in that activity or that lifestyle well, I'm the oldest in my family. So if there was an influence, I was the bad influence on my younger sisters who did date boys from the same gang that my boyfriend was in. So all three of us sisters were, uh, had boyfriends with the NCP crew, which is the North Chink Posse. And we were from the South Side town, but I don't know, we, we got caught up with the, the, the boys from the North Side of town. And, um, you know, to answer your question about like, well, what was the draw? What was the pull? Um, 
you know, I think that I think that when you start uh, uh, in the context of the bigger stuff that was going on, right? Like um, at least for uh, in high school, the there were there were I would call them race wars, right? Like the Mexican boys would pick on the Vietnamese boys, and the, the black kids, you know, the, the, there was there was definitely racial dynamics, right? Black kids were fighting Mexican kids, and the black kids were fighting the Asian kids. And I, I remember one time the um, there was this huge uh, fight in, in the math hall. So the math hall was like the most crowded hall because everybody had to take math and it was all these classes in this narrow hall and started in the math hall. And the next day, somebody uh, said that uh, some Vietnamese kids were bringing guns to school. So the principal got on the um, auditorium speaker or the, uh, got on the speaker system and it was like, all Asian boys report to the auditorium. Teachers, please send all your Asian boys to the to auditorium. So they sent all of the Vietnamese, and they were mostly Vietnamese um, in in the Asian American population in high school. And they and they patted them down, and they searched them, and they went to to the lockers, and um, and nobody had a gun. I mean, we weren't bringing the guns into school. I mean, we were packing them in the car wow. after school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, so so I think that because of what was happening in that way. I um drawn in I got I was drawn in because I felt like it was unfair and so I felt much more of an affinity right with like people or or or, or friends who like were being oppressed people who were being um, treated unfairly uh and 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 I'm not gonna lie I mean it was kind of fun too you know so I was doing my homework glamorous play volleyball until I quit the team um but it was just more fun like I'm just being so honest like if you talk to ex-gangsters anybody who said like oh I don't know you know like they're lying because everybody knew we had a good time so there's definitely that draw too you know and I don't know I'm trying to unpack like the gender dynamics what it is about women and like us being attracted to bad boys yeah I, I'm not gonna deny that at all you know I think there's still remnants of that today, right? Because my mom be like, "Why do you want to meet this doctor?" And I'm like, "Oh no, right?" But I see some guy; he's all tatted up. I'm like, "Hmm, hmm. you know, like I'm freaking 48 years old. It's still there. Where, where the hell is that coming from? I'm still trying to figure that one out, kid." <laughs> <laughs> this is such a good topic. Okay, L let me ask um, from a um, a sociological uh, with your training when you look back on those high school um, years and the dynamics that were going on could the government in theory or any government um, knowing enough about sociology come in to kind of prevent those things from happening those gangs and those that sort of race war from happening at that level in high school well, I think the racial dynamics, you know, are, are, are a lot more complicated than the socioeconomic dynamics. And so let me start with the, 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 the easier one, the socioeconomic. I mean, we see it repeated um, over time, like poverty um, and, and, and discrimination, whether it's like through racism, right, bullying at the individual level or structurally, right? the inability to get jobs, the inability to, you know, the economy at the time, 
right? When, when um, in the 70s and the 80s, you know, there were some struggles in the U.S. economy and even in the South in Texas. And so people were hard pressed for jobs yeah. um, and, and, and to, to make a living. So we as refugees come in and, uh, you know, where do, we, where do we get to live? We get to live in the, the poorest of neighborhoods. And there are so many incredible stories of people who've risen from that. Like we have more than enough stories, more than our fair share of success, like rising out of that, right? And so I do not want to discount that, but not everybody can be the same, right? And and and, and it's true, like we make decisions that like get us to certain uh, places in our lives. Um, but but the, but the, 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 the likelihood that um, delinquency happens is much more than if your um, uh, family life and your home life and your 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 uh, uh, income and your jobs and your finances were taken care of, right? Or at least buffered. And so, um, but but I think that the, so there's one thing, right? The the, the socioeconomic distress that that yeah. refugees live in. Then the other thing is like parent life, right? So I just talked about like how how solid my parents were, not to each other. They were fighting all the time. So yeah. that's another story, right? But um, but but there were parents that were um, uh, absolutely traumatized, probably very emotionally broken, right? Mental health illness, yeah. alcoholism. Uh, you know, some of my friends they would tell me stories about like just getting the shit beat out of them, Physical right? Abuse. Yeah, like major physical abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and so that that compounded within like you go to school, you're not doing well, you don't know the language, um, English is difficult to learn. Uh, ESL was not a thing in the, or a, a widespread thing in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and, and certainly not for Vietnamese language, right? Yeah. So uh, you've got a language barrier. You're not doing well in school, and then the kids pick on you, right? The 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 terms they say use, you know, the eyes, the like the physical, like they will punch you, they will kick you, they will spit on you, they will push you around, right? Um, so so in those circumstances, um, what can governments do? What can institutions do? I mean, I'm I'm a pessimist when I think about like the sociocultural fabric of the United States. Right. As a culture, there's many great things. And yet, like discrimination, harm, right, bullying. Um, uh, uh, but that's very and, and I think we're trying to do something better nowadays. Yeah. Right? But back then, um, I just felt like it was, there wasn't that much. Yeah. I mean, there's no back in those days in that part of the country, there's no awareness on how to kind of like approach it in a, and attack this it's it's looking in hindsight you can kind of like figure out the pieces that are making all of this stuff happen but when you're in it during those years the 80s and the 90s it was a bunch it was a lot of chaos that uh you know of course that was going to happen especially in these poor you know uh distressed uh, neighborhoods yeah and there were other gangs around right gangs that were created by other socioeconomic systems, black gangs, Mexican gangs, white gangs, white supremacy gangs. I mean, there was a lot of white supremacy and I'm not saying that it's, I don't know if it's gotten better in Texas, you know, oh, really? but um, so, uh, so now you've got these other gangs and so you form your own gangs for sources of protection, right? Or like, and like brotherhood, if your family's broken. Uh, um, uh, so, so many 
uh, so many factors can contribute and one single way doesn't explain like the whole uh, general uh, experience of, of what I would say were like Vietnamese gang life. You, you, you have elements, like if you talk to a, a lot of the folks that um, were in it at the time, you know, there are similar stories, but there are so many uh, variables that had impacted us um, socially, structurally, institutionally, and then um, day by day, like living daily life, um, being, um, you know, being treated poorly. You know, there's a another guest I had on, uh, Dr. Kimberly K. Huang, and um, I'm not, you probably are, mm -hmm. share the same space, but she grew up in a pool hall with, uh, you know, very loving family. And, but, you know, she brought up a really interesting point. A lot of the young boys that were, and I had a lot of cousins that were like in this situation where their mom and dad were stuck in Vietnam, but they went with an mm -hmm. uncle or, you know, mm -hmm. there's so many of that where, the parents are like, well, I'll send my first two born sons mm -hmm. because they can go with their uncles and, you know, survive out there in the ocean and they become yeah. somebody in the US, hopefully, and bring the rest of the family back. But many times a lot of those guys got caught up in gangs and their their uncles and aunts that brought them over didn't treat them right and, you know, <laughs> their their lives just went astray. And Kimberly um, talks a lot about the, that sort of, um, you know, during the holidays where they had nowhere to go, they would come to her mom and dad's pool hall. And you yeah. realize there's like this huge chunk of young men at that time who were <clears throat> rudderless. They didn't know where they were headed. Yes, yes. My uncle was <clears throat> one of those. So my dad sponsored a bunch of his brothers and the youngest uncle, um, you know, at the time, I think they did not have that kind of guidance, you know, and everybody's trying to uh, figure their own um, thing. My parents are trying to raise us. So my uncle was 13, I think, at the time that he came, 12, 13, um, parentless, living with us, but it was a crowded home, you know, and he's 13. So his English was really, really poor. Throw him in school, no guidance. Um, and so he ended up leaving the house and he joined a different gang. Um, oh man. Yeah. So, so I've got my uncle, you know, got some friends uh, that all got into um, uh, that lifestyle. And I think what um, Dr. Huang was saying, Kimberly Kay, is that uh, there are, um, there, these are all the traumas that came from, from war, right. And, and being, uh, being refugees and kind of the, um, uh, the uh, mass, uh, massive, uh, it, it, you know, migration um, story that, that then like that, if you can predict it, like we're like thinking that the, the refugee crisis now um, with our, you know, um, folks in Afghanistan and the history of Syrian refugees and other refugees and other immigrant groups, um, you know, that's how you see history being repeated. And I don't think that they're going to be able to avoid any of this stuff because the Irish gangs or the, you know, the gangs that came from Europe uh, in the early part of um, America's founding or throughout the last hundred years, they probably gone through the same discrimination or mm -hmm. they had to band together to protect themselves from, you know, maybe like a different type of uh, American that would encroach on their space. And yeah, yeah, indeed. Indeed, thinking like a historian and sociologist, Ken. <laughs> well, bring up this really interesting thing that happened. So 
you and I are like sort of like growing up in the same time frame. Um, I had per- peripheral sort of contact with the gangs, just like you. I you probably lived a, a much deeper into that lifestyle. I was on the peripheral. I thought it was cool, but being from Los Angeles and Koreatown, I didn't really grow up around a lot of Vietnamese daily, like the my friends in Orange County, the Vietnamese uh, guys that I went to high school with. But it was happening a lot in the um, 80s and 90s. And then something happened in the mid 90s, where it was like a light switch over, I think it was about a year. All of the gangs started to it just kind of like dissipated and went away. <clears throat> and I wonder if anybody has ever talked about or wrote about the introduction of ecstasy at the time, because Ooh. I felt like when ecstasy arrived, um, it was like at the height of like the rave scene um, mm. being, being birthed at that time. And we were all beginning to go to raves and we were beginning to sort of like, you would see like rival gangs meeting at raves and like it was like a big love fest (laughs) i don't so i don't know what what it was like in houston or where you grew up but out here in california probably around 97 98 is when things started to really shift and you know the acceptance of 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 rival gangs being in one place hugging it out was mind-blowing uh you know i I was, I have never, I never did drugs. So when I was younger, I didn't touch the weed. I didn't touch the Coke, the crack, the the ecstasy, nothing. I was like, I need to live clean. And I think it was because I was, I was into sports. So even though I dropped out of the volleyball team, I was playing in other leagues. And so, uh, but yes, I do remember a lot of folks, a lot of Vietnamese um, uh, uh, dropping, rolling, you know, the ecstasy, going to raves. I have never thought about that, Ken. So I, I, I like that angle. I'm thinking of the um, the conditions that 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 really um, busted up the gangs. So in the 80s was when you saw the like the the, the heightened violence, right? The home invasions, uh, the Vietnamese like gangs, and even becoming organized gangs. So like by the late 80s, early 90s, we're not just talking about like a couple of street you know, uh, 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 kids like, you know, robbing some houses and we're talking about extortion, money laundering, um, um, murder, uh, uh, large trafficking rings, uh, prostitution, right? So, and, and then that violence was the, the rivalry with like other gangs. And so I know in LA and in, in New York, um, there were Chinese gangs now that that were like, hey, you know, these Vietnamese gangs, they're starting to extort the same businesses we're extorting. Yeah. Like and so there was turf and territory. And so the violence ensued. And 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 that's when law enforcement was like, OK, this is now not just a one off. This is on our radar. I know that in Houston, the um, Houston Police Department formed an um, Asian gang task force. And um, and I would say in the early 90s and through the mid 90s, that's when they really start to do their sweep right and and if you look at the history of some of the la vietnamese gangs the new york vietnamese gang uh, born to kill right david tai there's a book on him uh notorious like vietnamese gang up there uh that's when they were that's when they were broken up right in the 90s so you you've got that factor and then you know and a lot of guys went to prison in the 90s 80s 90s 
um, and, and, and long-term sentences. So they're not doing like, you know, five, 10 years, they're doing 30, 40, 50 life sentences. Um, the first Asian American put on death row um, post moratorium. So there was a moratorium uh, because the, the, the Supreme Court said that the death penalty was being um, imposed uh, disproportionately against minorities. And so they had states uh, redo their policies and practices to ensure more fairness, right? And so um, Texas uh, re-entered that um, era um, and, and um, I think it was in 1975, I believe. But uh, post that, uh, um, it was a Vietnamese man who was um, executed in Texas for a pool hall shooting, right? And so we're talking, you know, like incarceration, death, drug overdose, right? And um, I think the ecstasy, you know, there may be something to your, your theory. I, I, I have no idea, but I, but I have heard it makes you very friendly. <laughs> and so I could imagine you know, now, yeah, we, now we, were, like, we were promoting parties to, at that time. What's that? I was promoting parties uh, at that time for two years. So you witnessed like, it. It just went away. It was the weirdest thing. Mm -hmm. well, I'm sorry. I, what were you going to say? Oh, you know, it, but ecstasy also brought in, um, I, I would say like some of the gangsters got smarter. They're like seeing their homies go in, you know, for these street crimes. And they're like, you know what? We got to figure out a different way of doing things. And so, ecstasy as a as a as a uh, as a, a drug was like, uh, uh, you know, something that a lot of people went towards um, dealing. And I have two friends; they're brothers, um, and they just came home from federal prison. Was it two years ago for um, operating one of the largest um, ecstasy rings? Um, in, in the Southern district of like, of the federal district. So they were doing it out of this, um, they were money laundering through this club that everybody in Houston was going to at the time. And like, I was going there, but at the time I didn't know that they were like running this huge drug ring, right? Um, so. So they got locked up from then and just got out right now? Yeah. Can you imagine all the Vietnamese guys that were locked up in the nineties, late nineties and were and are they're still there were and are mm -hmm. it's sad think i had a high school friend who got in for attempted or he, i think he did murder somebody and i remember mm -hmm. he got you know 25 years or something mm -hmm. thousands of vietnamese men at that time you have a a dear connection to that um segment of history and to somebody who is was very special to you um can we get into that sure sure it's his birthday today by the way happy birthday to happy birthday to vu to vu mm -hmm. so how did you meet him uh, who is he and what's his significance in your life uh well uh who is he he was um uh, uh, you know, Vietnamese refugee, just like um, us. He came to the U.S. when he was six. Um, he was, his family came by boat. Um, he grew up in Houston with me. Uh, he was part of um, NCP. And uh, I, so I met him, <laughs> I met him through my ex actually. <laughs> he broke, he broke bro code because he was part of the gang. And then my ex was, um, 
one of the leads of the gang, uh, this guy named LT. And um, after we broke up, LT and I broke up, um, you know, I tried to go, I, I did, Ken, I tried to go great. straight. Okay. I was in, I started college and I, and I was like, you know what? I'm not, I gotta, I'm going to go get, get college boy. And LT would like send his dudes to like uh, threaten these guys. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember this one guy I really liked. He was tall. He was handsome. He's Vietnamese. He was in college and he played volleyball and he just stopped talking to me one day. And I was like, what happened? What did I do? And he would not talk to me. And it was not till years later that I found out LT and his crew like was like, you need to stay away from her. If I see her around you, we're gonna come get you. And then I think his home was robbed like a few weeks later. So he freaked out and he's like, yeah, I'm not talking to her. <laughs> well, how long so, were you at LT for? Uh, like two years, I was like 16 to 18, right? And then, um, but then I met Vu, uh, because my sister was dating a guy named Tuan Tung, who uh, was part of NCP. And we went out that night to a karaoke bar and, and, and Boo was there. And so uh, it was like, it's like love at first sight. Like he was so cute, but he, he was, he had this, uh, this gangster swag, but he was like real sweet, real timid, kind of shy, you know, like it didn't match, right? Yeah. Like, what's up with this dude? Like, and um, he was not aggressive. He didn't like, I mean, it was just different. Um, so eventually, you know, we started talking and, um, and LT, like, again, tried to threaten him. And uh, he, he stood up for me. He's like, all right, what are we gonna do? We gonna fight about this? <laughs> so LT was like, all right, you know what, let it go. And, um, and that's how uh, Vu and I ended up uh, together. How close was LT and Vu? They were close. They were homies. We really crossed that bro code. He did. He did. He did. Um, did. Did they exist in the same space after you and Vu got together? No. You know, I, I one of the other things that was um, the reason why I left LT is because I tried to get him to go straight. I was like, you can't do this gang life forever. You can't be doing it. You know, maybe you should go back to school, you know, or at least get a job. I can't introduce you to my parents like like this you know yes. and um he didn't he kind of like got further and further into gang life so I, I you know that was one of the reasons that uh, didn't work out for us i told you ken i really tried okay i was trying to stay straight or go straight and leave this life behind um but my i met Vu and and he was willing right he was like you know what i'm gonna try for you um i dropped out of high school ninth grade but i can get a job you know and um and and so he kind of took himself away from a, a, a lot of those elements when we were together and then what happens i mean he, he he obviously didn't leave the life right 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 um you know it's like a it's like a it's a process right so you 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 maybe you don't you're not fully out of it but you at least you you've, you've tapered it down um, but the thing about Vu and the thing that one of the things that I loved about him so much was he, you know, he wore his heart on his sleeve. He had this really big heart. So anybody who needed help, he was going to help. And, and, you know, they, they would call him and, you know, if there was a situation, he would go. Um, so he wasn't in it in the daily, right. But some kind of like mess would come up and then he would, he would, he would show up. Right. 
and um you know and we were young and um you know I, I we didn't know how to manage like love and pain and like jealousy and 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 uh those kinds of things when you're 18 19 20 years old right so um we never fought but uh we didn't know how to have conversations so it was more like avoidance right of like issues and um and then eventually he um got caught in a situation uh in a, a, a club shooting or it was a shooting that resulted from a fight in a club and um and and he uh the person that was shot was not uh, he didn't die but he was severely injured and um you know this is in the 90s again mid 90s so there were also sentencing reform that was happening at the federal and state level like harsher harsher sentences um that were being handed down as a result of uh the other the, the war on drugs right and the other um, violence that was happening in other communities of color uh black communities um uh, uh, you know mexican communities latino communities so uh so he got 60 years uh for aggravated assault with a de deadly weapon did he have right? a prior history he had one prior one prior it was a a, a burglary Wow, 60 yeah. years. Like, and how old was he when he got that handed down? 24. Yeah. 24. And, um, you know, his friend, you know, there's a difference between um, what happened in the streets and what happens like in the courts, right? Yeah. So when I um, teach um, Introduction to Justice Studies, I talk about like, uh, I talk about factual guilt, right? In, in a court of law and technical guilt, right? So you can be factually guilty, like you did it, but if you have the right circumstances and maybe the right lawyers, you know, and the right resources, you could be found technically not guilty through due process, right? The many ways that our court systems work. You could also be uh, factually not guilty, mm. but through, a series of things in the courts, you could be found technically guilty. And we've seen that happen because the Innocence Project has shown us like plenty of people who've been um, put away for crimes they didn't commit. And in Boo's case, you know, um, he was there at the shooting, you know, um, but, but, but we all know, he knows, I know, his buddy that was with him knows, everybody in, in the crew, everybody in Houston knows, he didn't, he wasn't the trigger guy, right? He didn't pull the trigger. It was his buddy. And, and through a series of events, and I don't want to, you know, get into the details of the court cases, but um, he would not testify against his friend. That's, that's bro code, right? So he's like, I'm not going to say anything. Um, and, and he took that silence and it meant that he would do the time and his, um, you know, uh, his friend had the better lawyer and, and, you know, there's a lot of, there was a lot of negotiation between the two of them too. So there were, you know, his family, Lou's family thinks like, did, did G, the guy who, who did it, um, did he manipulate Lou into thinking like, yeah, I'm, you know, you do this, I'm going to do this. And we're both going to get out of it. Right. And, um, and that didn't dilemma. happen. What's that? The prisoner's dilemma. There's yeah, like, yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it mm, and I've asked him about it many times. We had talked about it, you know, I was like, how do you feel about that? You know, like, 
you stood up for something that you believed in, but that cost you like your life, 60 years in prison. And he said at first he thought, you know, like, that's what you do. Right. Like he was like, oh, it's fine. You know, I'm going to I'm going to appeal my case and like I'm going to get, you know, my family's going to get lawyers and um, I'm going to beat this. Right. So it was like some arrogance at the beginning. Then when he realized that that wasn't happening, um, it was too late. Right. And and like, again, um, bro code, like I'm not going to do that to him. Um, he's got like a wife and kid. Um, you know, it, it, it's almost like his sacrifices. Like I'm not married. I ain't got kids. So I'm, you know, I can do this time for him, you know, um, and, and that's a real thing. People, people really believe that, that they'll do time for their brothers. So, so um, did he get out of this whole scenario? No. Oh, G didn't escape the, the court system. Who G? Yeah. He did a little bit of time. Um, but he did not get 60 years because so, he came out pretty early. So can we talk about this a little bit? Was he the trigger mm -hmm. man? Mm -hmm. The trigger man, um, but got out a lot earlier. Okay, so let me, can I ask you this? Being so close to that world, right? When you think about the implications of this bro code and where men have to take that sort of burden for their brother on a on a on a street level if you were still in that situation and you could go back in time would you advise vu differently knowing you know the world of the gangsters you know the code and you understand the, the judicial code and you understand how this all plays out if you could go back in time, I know it's a kind of an unfair question, but if you could go back in time, would you advise Vu to rethink? And how would you, I mean, if you would, I don't know if you would or not, but. I tried then. <laughs> I was like, do not take the fall for this fool. Okay. And, and I know his family, you know, his sisters, everybody, everybody yeah, was like, don't do it. Um. But, you know, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of love between, um, um, these, these, these men that are, that are in it together. Um, and so, and, and in many ways, prison time is also, uh, not seen as, I don't know, as terrifying, as horrifying as like we would think of prison, you know, it's like. He'd been to jail before already. So, you know, what's, what's the big deal? I'll just do some time, right? Um, and in many ways, uh, for some, it's like a badge of honor, right? And the idea is like, you get out, you get out and then now you have like, you not only have street cred, you got time cred, right? You did time. And, and there's like a, a, a status to that. So we could think of it one way, and, and rationalize that decision. And yet in a different world, in a different culture, in a different way of being, uh, which is gang life, um, there's um, uh, the, the way he saw the world was very different, which informed his decision. So knowing what you know now and going back in time, there, you don't think that there's any way to convince somebody going into that situation to rat his friend out? 
the only, well, one of the ways that I think might have been effective, because I see it being effective now, um, is um, bringing someone in who's done the time, you know, and, 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 and someone that, that they can relate to, some that Vu would have related to, right? Um, uh, we didn't have that gift of like another Vietnamese man who'd done like 20, 30 years going back to Vu and saying, hey man, I know how you're feeling. I know what you're going through. I went through it too. I made the same decision as you. You don't want to be in prison. Here's what happens when you go in, you know, like your friends will forget about you, right? Don't, people are going to stop writing you who's nobody's going to visit you like you will be alone and then in prison there's a whole prison life prison politics politics prison gangs like you want to get caught up in that you know so i and that's what we do that's what i see happening today in our mentoring spaces uh, that we have for um young people who are who are in the juvenile system we don't want to send them somebody who doesn't it hasn't experienced what they've experienced because they're going to look at them and like, what, what do you know? You don't get it. Right. So in hindsight, going back, if there was one thing that I thought might have been effective, it might have been that. So this was over 20 years ago, right? This was in 1997. So, yeah, almost 25 years ago. Wow. And what made you decide to stick by somebody like this? I mean, it sounds like you stayed very involved in Vu's life actually didn't for a while. Um, so we have this parallel thing uh, that I think about. So his case was in December of 96. This is when the case happened. And then he went away in um, later that year in 97, like late 97 was when he had his conviction. 97 was also a significant year for me. Um, Again, I was living two worlds, right? Yeah. And um, Vu and I didn't, you know, we we had broken up for a little bit. We wanted to get back together, but it was always like different timing. And and um, I was had a boyfriend, he had a girlfriend, whatever, but, but we would always keep in touch. And I knew that there was always a love there. But again, like I said, we didn't know how to communicate that, right? How, how long were you guys going out together before this, before he went away? We met in 92. So we had known each other five years already. And then um, how long were you dating and boyfriend and girlfriend? Uh, like in the beginning, we were together almost a year. Then we had a breakup. Then we would get back and we'd talk. And then, you know, and then it was like, so it was only a really like a, a year of solid like togetherness and everything else was kind of in and out patchworks. Patchwork yeah. Right. Um, and, um, and so in 97, he went away. Um, in 95, 96, a few years before that, uh, uh, one of our close brothers, Tuan, the one I mentioned, my, my sister's boyfriend, he went away. Um, and another friend passed away. Um, so I just started to see everybody like not in a good ending. Like they, they were, got, they got incarcerated. They, um, suicide right other people were getting shot um my uncle was gone like we didn't know what happened to him uh i remember the police the houston police came to raid our home right it was like terrifying they were like throwing stuff everywhere and like they came and busted into my room and 
under my bed, through my closets, right? Like, you know, it was, it was a, um, it was a scary time. And, and then, and then, you know, I mean, it's hard to say this, but, uh, then I got shot. Right. And so I, in 97, I got, um, in the crossfire of a, of a gang shooting. So, so that will, uh, that will awake, you know, that'll do something to you. Okay. I'm not going to let that go. <laughs> We're going to have to unpack that. Where were you when that happened? At a pool hall. <laughs> what, what was the circumstance? Was it, um, were pool you involved? I was not involved in that particular incident. Um, I would, so I would be a, I was in the crossfire. Um, but I knew the parties that were involved and, um, you know, it was, it was, it was such a typical scene and I've been to parties. I've been to karaoke bars, clubs, other pool halls where shootings yeah. would happen. Right. And I would always feel like, whew, dodge that bullet. Yeah. And then this time I didn't. And, um, but I remember after, uh, after the incident, when, um, we were, you know, figuring out like who did it and who were, who were, who were they shooting at and who was, what was going on. Um, uh, then I had to find myself in a court case. Cause then like, are you going to testify right. Um, against the shooter. And, uh, that was a difficult thing because, uh, you know, they threatened me, right. They, they told me not to take the stand, bad things were going to happen. Um, People who knew who did it wouldn't come forward as a witness. I remember this one guy, he was like supposedly in love with me back then, you know? And then I was like, you know who did it? Are you gonna go, you, are you gonna go do the lineup, right? He's like, no, man, I can't. Like, I'm like, bitch, you're not gonna do this for me? Supposedly you love me, right? But he was scared, right? And I was like, you chicken shit. So, um, so I have a girlfriend that did it, right? She was brave enough, but 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 we both got like death threats and you know like threats of violence, and and I was just like, you know what? I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired because my brother wanted to retaliate, my uncle wanted to retaliate, and P wanted to retaliate. Everybody wanted to retaliate for what happened, right? And I was just like, no, I'm so tired of it, you know. Um, Lou was gone, Twan was gone, you know, it was just, it was just, it was just too much. And then like the way that my parents, you know, how it hurt them, um, reflecting on like, I could have, I could have not made it because it was a hollow point bullet. Right. And so I'm very fortunate that it hit me in the arm and not somewhere else because hollow points like, you know, explode. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, Man, so I was just like, okay, mm, gotta, I gotta rethink everything, and and that's when I said, I'm sorry, Vu. Like part of my journey to like turn my life around, I want to support you, but like, wow, I, you know. And then he wrote me a letter. Was like, I want you to move on. I don't want you know. Like, I'm sorry, I hurt you. <sighs> think about that letter you know it was like the goodbye letter it was it was hard but I think that if I hadn't gotten shot I might have still tried to 
um, stick with him and be like, okay, you know, you're going to appeal the case, you know, maybe you'll be out in like five years, seven years, I don't know, whatever. But um, I just had to take care of my myself. And um, so did, did you testify against the, the shooter in, in your case? I was ready. And the DA had me like primed and ready. And the day before the case, he pled out, he pled guilty, pled guilty to a lesser charge. And then, um, uh, and then he was up for parole. And I remember writing a letter to the parole board, you know, about how it impacted me and that he shouldn't be out, but he was released. Um, I think after like seven years, it was his first crime and nobody died, you know, I guess. Um, and, um, but then he eventually, um, uh, went back in, he murdered his girlfriend. He, um, was very, a very jealous person, I guess. Um, and he, um, he went to his girlfriend's house and, uh, strangled her, burned the house. And, um, and, and, and so he's, he's in for life now. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah. That's some shit, man. Yeah, that is some real shit. That's some real shit. Yeah. And I had PTSD then, and I didn't know it because we didn't know it. I never heard of PTSD. I think maybe I remember it was for veterans. But I had nightmares every night. Like every few nights, I would have these nightmares of this guy like chasing me. He would chase me in a movie theater. He would chase me in like a ballroom. And like, you know, uh, it was just I would wake up like with like, like just full of sweat and um and uh be worried and then another I remember another dream where he shot a, a boyfriend that I was with right so I was having these like nightmares and then um I would go anywhere I would go and I would hear like um like a a, a muffler pop or like a, a garbage you know like those large garbage mm -hmm. tops like pop you know like any kind of loud boom <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a crazy time. So, okay. So you get shot and you, you leave the life. Like you finally, um, are yeah. now you're done. You're, you're over yeah. this, right? Okay. So I, then... I, I had dropped out of college at the time. Okay. I went to college. I'd always wanted to be a writer. Um, and I wanted to study, get a degree in English. Right. And my mom and dad were like, you already speak English. Why would you study English? You, you know, that makes no sense. You, you, typical, like you gotta be a doctor, you gotta be a lawyer, a nurse, whatever. And and I and I did it because of guilt because I had done all these other things in, in my life. I got I went to jail for shoplifting. It was only one night, you know. I got probation, but um, I was stealing for my crew, right? And and so I I had a lot of guilt um, about like the, the bad things I was doing. So I said, okay, you know what? To please my parents, I'm gonna go study, be a doctor. And I hated biology. I remember getting an 18 out of 100 on my first organic chemistry test. And I was like, I'm dumb. I'm not smart. I can't, I can't do college, right? So I tried and I changed my major like five times. And I was just like, okay, maybe this is just not for me. And um, yeah, so, so, so I dropped out of college. My friends were all screwed up and then I got shot and it broke my parents' heart and I watched them like look at me in the hospital room it was just love you know like i was like oh they're gonna fucking kill me I'm gonna kill, they're gonna kill me for getting shot in the middle of the night and having them wake up at 3 a.m to come get me in the hospital right but it was so not like that they were they were like it's gonna be okay you know we're gonna take care of you 
I mean, my mom would like stroke my hair, you know? And I was just like, fuck, what the hell am I doing, right? Um, yeah, they came at me with love. And so I was like, okay. And, and they weren't I, like that, like at all before that happened? Like they weren't loving? Like no, I, I mean, I mean, they were, but not in a, um, not in a crisis sense, because I guess I've never gone through crisis, you know, like, I, I remember, you know, they would come out with tough love, just like a lot of other Vietnamese parents, like, they don't say I love you, they don't, you know, hug you, they don't kiss you, and I'm not saying, it might, and I think that, like, in crisis is when they were like, oh my God, my daughter's, look at her, she's laying in the hospital with like a, a hole in her arm and blood everywhere. And like, um, she what do you mean she got right? Like, yeah. and, and, and so um, it, it, it took, it, it brought something out of them that I'd not seen before. And, and it's not that they weren't, uh, it's not that they were abusive. They just weren't um, loving. And I really thought they were gonna like, rip me a new one (laughs) for being out late and getting you know um getting myself about that you think about that on a cultural level how most parents most of our vietnamese uh parents of that generation have no idea most most of them i would say have no idea how to emotionally connect during the time that we were growing up and i this is just one example um that they did the right thing because it could have easily been like, how annoying am I, you know, mm-hmm. all of this sort of finger pointing, but it didn't work out that way. It, they yeah. approached it with love. But if you think about like all of the other times that we grew up as a uh, second generation group of, or one and a half of, of these kids, if they approached everything with love first, then we, you know, the whole group of, young kids at that time would have probably turned out a lot different. They yeah. don't need to say, I love exactly. you. I mean, they just need to, well, they do, they kind of do in America, right? <laughs> kind of have to let the kids know that it's a very communicative uh, society. And, but Vietnamese parents of that generation didn't approach it that way. Mm-hmm. Got in trouble for yeah, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another story. Um, when I, one of my, one of our friends, he was wanted and he was well. He was wanted for for um, a home robbery, gone wrong, um, and the homeowner was um, um, injured. And you know, his parents were like the typical, like difficult, but also like not around. Um, and I remember, I remember he went on the run, and his dad and mom, who like were never really involved in his life. I thought they were gonna be like, hey, you need to turn yourself in. Hey, you need to do the right thing, you know? And then they were like, oh my God, I don't want this to happen to my son. And they're like, maybe we can get you to Vietnam. Maybe we, like they were gonna hide him, you know? And I was like, oh man. But in the end, he, his own decision to turn himself in was because if I go on the run in the way that his parents had shown him love in that that crisis moment, right? He was like, oh man, my parents don't wanna turn me in. My parents wanna help me run, wanna hide me, right? Like send money to Vietnam or whatever. And so um, he turned himself in because he said, if I run, 
I'll never get, I'll never see them again. And if I go, if I, if I face up to my crime and I do the time, maybe one day, or, you know, maybe they can visit, still visit me and one day I'll be out. But if I go the other route, I'll never see them again. And then what happened to that person? So he did, he, he, he went in, um, he did his time and um, he got um, 50 years. Five zero. Five zero. Um, and he got out in 2019. So he did 26 years, but he's home with his parents now. Do you keep in touch with him? Mm-hmm. And, it's my bro, my little bro. Almighty. <laughs> and what is he? What has he done since he's gotten out? Um, he um, he went to school while he was inside. He got a couple of degrees, associate's degrees. Um, he he got out. He got a job. He's working. Um, he's hoping you know, get a girlfriend, maybe get married, have a family. He just wants. A normal life now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you know, real funny story. So um, he was at one unit, and and Boo and him know each other. They're friends. And he was at one unit, and Boo was at a different unit. And um, after a while, uh, Tuan, his name is Tuan. His his parents got a little older, and he um, uh, applied for a, a, a hardship transfer, so you can transfer to another unit, so that your parents don't have to travel so far to see you. And he ended up at Boo's unit. So they got a few years together, right? Mm-hmm. And Tuan was like, this unit is a hellhole. Like, you need to get out of here, Boo. You don't know what, like, this is the worst unit that I've ever seen. And um, and he tried to convince him, like, to do a transfer and stuff like that. But, you know, Boo was like, uh, you know, I've, I've built myself a life here in prison, right? You got your friends. You got your status. You know the way things work. Like, he didn't want to change, even though he knew like there were other units that had better programs, air conditioning. This one didn't have air conditioning, right? So, um, so Tuan was like, "I'm out of here. Okay, I'm not. I don't want to leave you, bro. But I'm out." So he transferred to a different unit. And the when Tuan was um, approved for parole, he had to transfer. He he was processed out of his unit um, at Vu's unit. And so this was in 2019 and he told me, Tuan told me, he's like, yeah, I, I tried to find him. You know, I tried to say goodbye. And, and I was the one who had relayed the information to Vu that Tuan had got parole. So we were all happy and stuff, but he sent him a little note, right? So these little kites, right? Sent him a note, so we're there, this guy, this guy. And so he, you know, he was like, it was the best feeling in the world because he was getting out of prison. He's like, but it was also a, like a bittersweet thing because he really wanted to see Vu right? Um, just in that moment where he was transferring out and he didn't get the chance to see that. So, um, you know, those little stories that are, are the ones that I kind of like uh, think about when, when we're talking about like friendship and love and like um, the lives of these men after, you know, doing so much time. When did you re-enter uh, back into Vu's life? Because um, you're now going on a different path. You're a little bit more straight and narrow. But I'm sure you. Oh didn't yeah, know. I went the other way. I was like, I don't want to have nothing to do with y'all. I don't want to talk about it. I never told anybody what happened to me. I um, I said I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to become a lawyer because um, I want to help others. You know, I saw Vu's case like he got screwed over, and I wanted to be an advisor. So I went back and I studied sociology, and I remember my my one of my professors. 
um, she was the first professor that I ever remember talking about Vietnamese people in class. So I'd taken all these history classes, psychology classes, sociology classes, and she's this Latina, and it was sociology of the family, and she talked about Vietnamese families. It's like, whoa, somebody's talking about us, right? And she had us read these articles about Vietnamese families. And I was like, mind blown. I'm like, whoa, look at, there's people writing about our experience. And so I came to her and I was like, hey, you know, um, it, you know, is there anything, anything volunteer that I can do? I'm trying to get into law school. I want to like maybe be your intern or whatever. And she like, literally, she's like, you want to go to law school? You know, she's like, um, you want to have a life someday? <laughs> Like, you know how lawyers work 80 hours a week, you know, to be successful? She's like, what kind of lawyer do you want to be? And I said, defendant, defender, you know, defense lawyer, criminal defense. She goes, oh, you want to be broke too? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I'm like, okay, never mind. And um, yeah, so she said, you should be a sociologist. You're a natural. I've seen your grades, I've seen your essays. You are going to go to graduate school and become a PhD like me. I was like, Wow. Okay. She guided me. And that's how I ended up um, going that path. Wow. So you just kind of listened to her. Okay. So then you take this path, but then at some point it brings you back to reaching out back to VU. Yes. Because in, um, so I finished my degrees. I got my job in Oceanside, California. So I moved away from Texas, which was a great relief because it was like, I'm going to start over you know, after I moved out of Houston, I went to Austin for graduate school and I just was like, I'm going to create a new self. It's going to be different. And then I got a chance to be, um, to go on sabbatical in um, 2018. And my, uh, I, I had by then read a lot of works by um, Asian Americans, Vietnamese Americans. And again, I love writing and, and reading. And so I became friends with the author of I Love User for White People, Black Sue. And so he became like a really good friend. And he's like, Tao, you got to write your story. You know, like you got a crazy story. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, kind of imposter syndrome. And like my dad always like, you just need to stay humble. You don't, don't think you're all that, right? So I remember that all the time in my head. I'm like, hey, I'm not all that. And I know I've done these things, but just stay humble. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know, like, I don't know if anybody wants to hear my story. It's not that big of a deal. He's like, no, it's, you know, so he convinced me. So I started writing about that life right about like growing up as a refugee in texas what it meant to be like part of like gang life and like how i ended up where i am and and in that process when i started writing about boo i started crying ken i was like because you have to get into the moment and you have to put down the thoughts the feelings the emotions the, the memories right oh it was i started crying so bad right and i was like and, and, and all of these years, you were not in contact with Vu. He um, would send me like Christmas cards occasionally. I remember he tried to call on like a hot cell phone, um, maybe like in 2013, 2014, something like that. And I got scared and I like didn't want to pick up the phone. And that was that time when he was in with Tuan. So Tuan had called. I picked up the phone. Tuan's like, hey, sis. I'm like, oh, hey, Tuan. He's like, hey, somebody wants to say hi to you. I was like, who is it? And in Vu's voice. And he has a very distinct, raspy voice. So I heard it and I was like, oh, hey. Um, hey, you know what, guys? I'm real busy. Like, uh, hey, Tuan, like, call me back another time, okay? Uh, it's good, good, 
good talking to you, Boom. All right, gotta go, guys. And I hung up and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, right? It was just too, it was too over, overwhelming for me. And then they would call back and I never picked up again. 2018. Like, this was no, to like 2013, 2014. Okay. It was still yeah. fresh for you. Um, Unprocessed, I mean. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was like, oh, I don't wanna talk to him. Yeah, I don't wanna talk to him. I don't know what that's like, right? And then I remember his sister, he must have told his sister something because his sister and I are pretty close. And she reached out to me. She's like, hey, sis, you know, you know, who might get out soon? Just now I think he was up for an appeal and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I don't want no part of it, right? And, uh, but then like, but I, in hindsight, I think I was uh, avoiding, right? I'm like yeah. avoiding and, and like uh, feeling tense because I was like, oh man, this is going to be a whole wall of like a, a, a dam that's gonna like let loose and flood out all these emotions so um yeah and then when I started writing it it was it was painful and that's when I reached out to the sister I was like hey can um can uh, I have his address because um I, I I wanted to apologize because I remember that he tried to call and I, I didn't and I remember and I had also become a mentor for um, formerly incarcerated students on campus. Mm. And when I listened to their stories, I kept thinking about him and how, you know, if you just have somebody in your life, like there's hope. And I kept thinking, man, I wonder who's there for Vu, right? I know his family, his sisters occasionally visit, but I remember that his parents had stopped visiting because it was too painful for him, you know, for them, I'm sorry, for them, they're like, it was too sad to, to leave every visit. And so they stopped coming. And his sister was like, oh, he's in a dark place. And I just, oh, it was just so painful. So um, yeah, so I wrote him. I was like, hey, <laughs> do you remember me? <laughs> it's your ex from 1992. <laughs> yep. And that's 2018, you said. That was 2018. Yep. And I cannot imagine leaving my son because it's so painful, leaving him in there to rot and to not go visit him. That would just be, it's terror, terrorizing to think about that, that thought. Yeah. Mm. So, so you start writing him. And things start to sort of like um, you guys get closer. What's the frequency of the letters and how do you kind of structure all of this sort of closeness again? Um, it, it, it started to be one letter a week. Like I would write and he would write. And then that week I'd write again. So it was like almost weekly letters. And then, and then I was like, can I come visit? <laughs> like, then I went to go see him, you know, I got on a plane and, and visited him. Um, again, I was on sabbatical, so I had like flexibility. It was, um, it was October, his birthday's today, my birthday's in a couple of weeks. So I was like, oh, it's for our birthday. And man, when I saw him again, it was just like everything from 1992, 1997, like it just all like came back. Right. And everything that I, that we, he and I didn't process then just like came out. Right. And, and so, um, you know, I've grown, he himself had grown while in prison. Um, I got to know him and he's 
he's different, but he's the same, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot parts of our, ourselves that that are remain, but we've learned from things. He has he taught me so many things um, about solitude, about um, about uh, reflection, about uh, pain. Uh, you know, about how to deal with like negative people because he's around negative people all the time, right? And I'm like, how do you stay so positive? And he's like, oh, let me tell you about that, right? And so, um, yeah, we just grew so close. And I, I remember like, oh my God, am I, am I still in love with this dude, you know? Wow. And, 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 he, and he would tell his sisters like, I mean, his sisters would know like, he's always loved you. He never stopped loving you. And then I remember one letter, he's like, the, the love never died, at least for me anyway, but you know, our circumstances are, I'm going to still be in here a long time. And if I get out at that time, when we wrote, he still had nine years left. He's like, if I get out, I'm still deportable. So he has a detainer for deportation, right? He's like, I don't think we could ever physically be together. He's like, but I'll love you from a distance. And I was like, oh, you know, like I always, like I always loved you. And I'm like, Ugh, right. Um, so, you, you know, the heart is just, a, man, it's, it's, yeah, so, yeah, i like, so did, well. Did you guys officially get back together while he was in, or you guys just sort of understood the practicality of that and said, all right, we could just agree to love each other, and that you just left it at that? Yeah, he, 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 again, he helped me learn so much. He said, you know, um, well, yes, I, I, you know, I was like, I, I still love you, right? I still had these feelings. I was flying to visit him. We would talk on the phone. Sometimes we would be on, like on the phone for hours and his sister would be like, what do y'all talk about? I'm like, oh, anything and everything, right? But how um, can you talk to him while he's in jail? Oh, they get calls, kid. <laughs> like, how does that work? Uh, so you, you can pay for like minutes right and on your account and then um they could either call you collect and you pay for the minutes or they can have their account and they'll call and 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 it's 30 minutes per call and then when you they hang up on you you can call back again and the like they are allotted that amount of time i mean you can mm -hmm. talk for hours while you're in jail some days yeah and again he probably had a lot of clout he was already in 20 something years so like nobody's like busting him to get off the phone, you know, like there's only limited number of phones, but if you, you know, if you have respect in there, people won't be bugging you to get off the phone. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, again, that's probably why he didn't want to leave. He had some status there. I remember this one time he called and he likes to sing, you know, it's our karaoke days and he was singing me a song. <laughs> and then like, it got noisy in the back and he turned around and then I heard, I heard it like a little muffled. He's like, hey, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to sing to her. Because <laughs> it got quiet. And then he's like, continues the song. <laughs> it was the most romantic thing, Ken. <laughs> no, it sounds so sweet. But, but you know, what exists um, is that sort of that light and darkness, the contrast of sort of like an educated woman who's free versus this dark space, this criminal or, you know, somebody who's doing time and just that the difference of of your life and his life is what's so fascinating to me well it's that difference and yet at the core of us right and like this is why i think like our histories and our 
experiences when we're younger, if we don't know, if we don't reflect and we don't know what to do with them, you know, they end up resurfacing. And that's exactly what happened to us. Like these, we, we never got to talk about like the, the challenges that we had, even as a couple when we were young, right? And then like the lifestyle and where that led us and how he was, we talk about like, what if I was, what if I was able to convince him not to do it, right? But he was, or, or not to, or, or to, to not like take the fall. And he, there were so many what ifs. He's like, well, I don't know if you would have gotten where you've gotten, right? Like, mm -hmm. what if I held you back because you would have been still trying to hang on to whatever life he was hanging on to. Yeah. And so there's a letter where he's like, if, if your success was the result of me having to do time, like I'll do it again. Right. And I'm like, Ooh, you know, <laughs> it kind of, it really kind of like, if you think about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're love. different today, but, but our hearts were, are, are still, you know, it was very similar. similar. What did your mom, what did your mom and dad think? Like well, connection and how did they feel? You know, my parents were very interesting. And I, I don't, I think other Vietnamese parents, when you, when I talk to my parents and if it's anybody like I'm, it's a guy, I'm like, oh, bang, bang, like, you know? Right. And, and, and so, uh, I would bring it up to them. I'm like, Hey mom, do you remember? And my mom's like, Oh yeah. I remember that guy. He had that raspy voice. He has a very distinguishable voice. And uh, right? I'm like, yeah, 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 that's him, right? And and I said, yeah, no, 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 blah, blah, blah. And, and tới bây giờ nó còn trong đó, nhưng mà um, con với nó lại bạn rồi, bạn làm bạn lợi, you know? And, uh, um, you know, con tới thăm nó, tay tội nó, you know, nó không có ai hết, ba má nó hết thăm nó. And, and, and my, my mom and my dad are, like, very, they've always been, um, they've always taught me to, like, don't look down on people, help people if you can. My parents helped a lot of people, like people coming in and out of the house, living with us. So they're like, oh yeah, yeah, give that in, you know, go làm you know, this and that. So they're like, yeah, go visit him, go write him, go call him, you know, like. But and then towards the end, my mom's like, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, maybe, she's like, hmm, okay, you know. Parents are very understanding. And at that, at some point, did they say stop it? No. 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 They were completely like open to like visiting this person and being in love. And then did, at some point, did you tell your mom I that mean, I'm in love? I mean, look at like, like my uncle, he got out in 2017, I think. So he did about 15 years. So I think they have a, re they have a relativity of like, mm -hmm. It's not that it's bad in the family that had that that had that happen to them and then tuan is our other you know our other friend and my parents loved him when he was still like you know part of our our, our our friends and family and my parents are always like oh you know god his poor parents having to like mm. you know have their son in prison and and uh, so my parents are very empathetic people mm. and um whether like love or not friendship or not my parents are like, just be good to people. Like, oh, you want to help him? Go ahead, help him. Like, you want to write him? Go ahead. You know, you should go visit him because maybe he does need somebody to talk to, right? And but when it comes to love, you know, I think 20 years ago, they would have been like, hell no, right? Yeah. But, um, but I've always done my own thing. 
you know, um, when it comes to um, relationships. So just, I just, they just supported that way. So you, you reconnect and you're falling in love by 2018, 19, you said. Mm -hmm. And so this is now taking over your heart, mind and soul, right? You're, you're in this at this point. I'm in it. I'm in it. Um, but he kept telling me, he's like, and I was struggling. I was like, man, do I want to be a prison girlfriend? You know, like I got a life out here kind of hard, you know? So I had the struggle of loving someone. And then I kept thinking, is this like nostalgia? Is that I feel bad for him? Is it this a past? Like, shouldn't I move on? Like, you know, like what's the past? What's the pres present? And like, how do I, um, you know, reconcile like, um, this, um, this, 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 this difference between us. Right. And, and also kind of like, I'm not gonna lie, like fear of like reputation. Like, what do you mean you love someone in prison? What's wrong with you? Like, why would you, why would you be in love with a, uh, a person in prison? Um, especially when you're a professor and like all that stuff that you, you know, you brought up. So it was like, a, I would go back and forth and then, you know, there were guys outside that like would pursue me. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. And, 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 and Vu told me, he said, um, I love you unconditionally, which means that while I'm inside, you do whatever you need to do, right? One day when I get out, I'm gonna come after you. And then you have like, I'm not gonna make you make a decision, but you'll know that I'm there. So what you decide to do is what you decide to do. Um, and he said, if you, if you end up meeting someone else, because I know you will, because you know, you got a lot going for you. Um, as long as I'm boyfriend number one, <laughs> I'm good with that. Right. I was like, okay. And I thought about that. Right. So I did meet this guy, a super nice guy. Like we were friends for a while. Um, I'd been married before divorced and I knew him from my, my, my ex-husband and um we connected and he and so i was like you know what i don't know man because i'm not sure if you want to get involved with me and i was very truthful i was like there's this guy this other guy he's incarcerated you know and this guy was like oh um wow i you know that's he 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 listened to the story and he was like that's powerful he's like you're such a you know you're this is a beautiful story he's like look i'm not gonna make you choose i really like you like let's try this. You never know where life will take us. Like it could be, you know, uh, maybe he's the love of your life. Maybe I could be the love of your life, you know, but you don't know. And I'm okay with you loving him in there. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> like, okay, let me try this thing out. Right. So I was dating him, telling him about when Boo would call me. Then I would tell Boo like, oh yeah, we went out, you know, this and that. And I still love you and he's like and he would go he would, he would get on the phone he's like so how's boyfriend number two right I'm like oh he's good this and that <laughs> and I remember at Christmas time the guy in the outside was like hey do you want me to drive you to the prison to to visit Vu and I was like I'm not gonna make you drive three hours and sit in the parking lot for four hours it's like basically a seven eight hour day and he's like it's okay I'll, I'll bring a book and I'll read <laughs> like oh my god right? That's how much love he had for him. And then Vu was like, I don't want you guys to waste your time, you know, coming to visit me. 
he's like you should spend time with him and then when you're free by yourself you can come visit me and I was like okay so they were just like you know and 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 Boo would tell his sister I can't hate the guy like yeah. he's good to her you know I just want her to be happy if he makes her happy so it's just like it was crazy and I was like literally did not know what to do I was sometimes I feel selfish when I think back about it like why didn't I why didn't I, why why would I do that why did I um date two people at once or be with two people at once and 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 you know Boo would always tell me he's like hey it's your circumstance like what would anybody else do mm-hmm. if you if your heart is with somebody but they're incarcerated and a lot of people a lot of women would probably look at me and be like you're freaking selfish like I stood by my man I did not need anybody outside you know yeah maybe i don't know i don't have an answer i'm still trying to process that you know it's complicated man complicated it's complicated but this has a very uh tragic ending right well yes oh man so in 2020 um you know um things weren't working out for me and, and the other person and and you know, for different reasons, uh, don't need to get into details, but we, we, you know, we decided that we, um, weren't going to continue as like a couple or dating or whatever. And at that time I was like, you know, I've already, uh, I don't think I need anyone outside anymore. And I was like, you know, I have so much going on. I've got this book I need to write. I've got this film that I'm, I'm working on. I've got my full-time job. I'm in many ways trying to um, be in a relationship is, is, is work and energy. And, and, you know, I don't need the troubles and the headaches because there were some challenges. Right. Um, so when we broke up, I talked to Vu and I, um, and I said, you know, let me, let's just try this. Let me just, I want to try to be with you, Bob, of only you. Mm. And um, I, I gave this thing, this other thing a chance and you were so gracious and grateful and, and open and supportive. And I want to give, um, I want to just be with you. And, and then, you know, we're going to try to keep every year, like fighting for your early release, try to change laws in Texas that would have like given an early parole and let's just try. Um, and he's like, he's all happy. He's like, so there's only one boyfriend then? I'm like, yep, just you. Right. And then the pandemic hit. And, um, so we had this plan to have this visit together and that didn't go through. I, the, I saw him in January of 2020. That's when we had this conversation. Right. Uh, and, uh, by March, everything shut down. So I didn't get to visit him. I was going to go visit during spring break. And then they like cut off phone calls because, you know, it was now like hard to get on the phones, social distancing, cleaning and all that. So they put him on lockdown and he was getting like a one minute, one five minute phone call, like every week or something. So he'd have to like, I'm like, Hey, call your family, you know? And then I would talk to him maybe other, every other week. And then the letters were difficult because there was a disruption in mail. And so a letter would take that usually took a week to come was taking three weeks to come. Right. And so it was just, it was just very difficult, but I was like, it's fine. You know, like we we made it through 20 something years of separation this last two years of trying to figure ourselves out. And, um, 
it's not gonna phase me, right? Like when this pandemic's over, we'll still, we, we get to start anew. And then, um, and then in July, he got sick. And it was a, it was a really tough battle with like prison medical. And I know that he was probably sick since like April, like May, he started feeling certain pains. And you know, prison medical is like, it's exactly what it's exact. His, this experience was exactly what you hear. They neglect you, they don't care. They think you're lying, they think you're faking it. They give you ibuprofen, tell you to go go away. And and then your, your illness can get worse and worse. And so he collapsed. And they sent him to the ER outside of the prison because they didn't have a, a they don't have a full medical um, thing at the at the unit, and they couldn't figure out what's wrong. So then they finally, after he collapsed, after he lost thirty pounds, right in a month, um, on the floor, uh, cre- scar- crying, screaming, you know, they finally um, sent him to a specialist at the prison hospital. And it was July 16th that he called me and he's like, hey, babe, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to the hospital finally, but my foot is swollen, my back hurts, my stomach hurts, I got all this pain, I can't eat, you know, it's, it's hard for me to sleep, I can barely walk, like, it was, it was sounding awful. And, um, and I remember he said, hey, I read in the Houston Chronicle about this woman who had stomach cancer. And he's like, I think I have stomach cancer. And I was like, no, stop. Like, you know, you probably have kidney stones or some like kidney thing. And, you know, you just, I was like, no, 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 no. So he goes to the hospital the next day, July 17th. And then four days later, the, 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 um, the doctor called and uh, said he had pancreatic cancer, stage four, stage four. And I. <sighs> the worst of them all pancreatic oh yeah like the one of the deadliest right and i was like he's gonna die and 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 if it's not in one year it's five years like the longest like that people have lived from pancreatic cancer like five years right and i'm like he still has seven left he's gonna die in prison um yeah that's that's yeah but Never to be, you know, always to be a fighter. I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to try and get him out. I re- I remember reading about like medical parole that if someone's diagnosed with less than six months to live, you could you could petition to have them come home to be released. Um, it's called compassionate release. Mm-hmm. And so I started researching the process and, and it was, and, and, but then the doctors gave him a diagnosis of less than one year to live. So he didn't qualify for compassionate release. So then I went and looked and his family talked to some lawyers and we found a, a, a team of lawyers who said, well, we can, we can file for a writ of habeas corpus, which is like, uh, because of COVID, you know, they can do early release. He's a, he's a high risk, you know, he's got cancer. Uh, we would get in front of a judge and then the judge could like, you know, approve. Um, it was going to cost $40,000. <laughs> I was like, Okay. And you know, the family was like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna put the money together and we're gonna do this. And I, I got, I got a call from him, got one rare phone call. And I said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. Your family's going to do this. We're gonna get you a lawyer. And I remember him just like, man, I don't know. I just don't want to do that to my family. Right? Like, 
they already spent so much money on me, like for my first case. And he felt a lot of guilt. And I was like, hello, we're trying to save your life so that you could like be home with them, you know, one last time. Uh, but he, but that's him. He's always thinking about, he's about to die. Okay. He's got this death diagnosis and he's like, oh, I just don't want to do that to my family, you know? And, um, and so I said, okay, well, I'll ask them for some help. <laughs> and so his sister was like, can you, can you, can you set up a GoFundMe? And I said, I absolutely will. Um, but I also used the opportunity to like, um, I wanted to people, I wanted people to know why we were asking for help. And I had written this one version that was very angry. It was a very angry version of like, angry at G for what he did, angry at the system, angry at cancer, angry at just pissed off, right? And like, please help me, please help the family. And um, his sister read it and she's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, sis. This is like, mm -hmm. this is not, this is not you. You know, you're not like this. Um, she's like, I want to know, what I really want to know is like, why do you love my brother so much? Mm. <laughs> you know? Cause she's thinking the same thing too. Like here's Tao over here and my brother over here. Why does she love him? Why would she do all this for him? Um, so that's how I, um, that's how I presented the story. Please help this family because this is a, uh, this man is um, a beautiful person and I just want to give him this last gift. Um, this last gift, uh, to, um, if he's going to die, please don't let him die alone in prison. Let him die, uh, with his family uh, by his side. Right. That's how I wrote it. And, um, the community was incredible. Like people started sharing like random strangers were giving, family were giving, friends were giving, all the old homies, right, that knew him were like, oh my God, I didn't, I know who went away, but I didn't know this was happening to him, right? And so they gave, um, they gave a lot and they gave quickly. And so we were able to hire the attorneys. Um, but the tragic thing is he didn't, he didn't make it, right? So the week, before we were supposed to get a trial, a hearing, um, he, I mean, you know, it was just ravaging him. Um, I got a FaceTime with him about four days before he passed. And like the, it, the, the cancer had gotten into his skin. He was itchy. He couldn't walk. Um, he was like bedridden. Um, it was in his bones. It was in his um, liver. It was in his kidney. It was in his throat, like his lymph nodes. It was gotten his brain. He couldn't read anymore. He couldn't um, write anything. Like the nurses were reading the letters to him, right? These kind, compassionate nurses. So um, yeah, it, it, it ravaged him. And, and he just, um, his body couldn't take it anymore. So it was about like nine weeks um, that he had passed away from his diagnosis. Since the, since the diagnosis. That was yeah. fast. Yeah a lot faster than I thought I was like you know what maybe he has six months and then we got this oncology report from the from the um, expert witness that we hired and he's like this man this man has a month maybe weeks left and 
based on that, um, it was about a week later that he had passed away. Wow. So once that happens, um, you know, the family picks up the body and they bring the body out of prison. Then is there a funeral process that happened after that? Mm -hmm. We um, had a funeral. Um, you know, we had enough funds um, from the, the, the GoFundMe and the, the donations um, to give him a very beautiful ceremony, burial. Um, Jay showed up, right, to the funeral. Oh, wow. And uh, I wanted to go smack him. <laughs> and, I, and I went to one of Vu's brothers and I was like, he's here. And LT was there. LT showed up too. And I saw LT. I was like, what is he doing here? And he's like, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, you know, seething with anger. And then um, Boo's brother came to me and he's like, you know, Tao, we talked to, you know, Vu has always said he forgave Try. He's like, I forgive him. I'm not bitter. Like, yeah. I own this. Like, I don't blame him at all. And I forgive him. At first I was angry. First, I was hating on him, but you know, you learn after a period like that does nothing for you. So he's forgiven tree. And so his brother said, you have to remember if Vu can forgive him, then we can forgive him. I was like, okay, I'm forgiving him for Vu. I'm not going to go over there and cause a scene. Um, but yeah, had a funeral, had a burial. It was well attended. People, you know, People love his family. People remember him, um, and it was it was it was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that um, beautiful journey with me. Uh, I'm sure it's it, it's not easy to go back and revisit these points, these fine points um, of your journey with Vu. But it's a beautiful story. I mean, and and here is why it's beautiful to me. It's beautiful because don't make me cry again. Just kidding. <laughs> All right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know we're crying anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. It's beautiful to me because, um, you know, not all of the things that happen in our life, um, go smoothly and beautifully what we think they, that it will, but listening to the pain and the struggle of all of these last few years for you, um, I'm not sure if, let's just say you just got married, you know, five years, 10 years ago, he got out and, you know, he, he's your husband and you live a life where there's, you know, you go grocery shopping and <laughs> mundane things happen and that the, the significance of something like this um, doesn't happen. You know, tragedy brings these beautiful poignant sort of moments in our life that um, are invaluable, right? Like, like an everyday husband, everyday wife, I mean, you know, <laughs> go on, but, you know, and the fact that, you know, the mercy and forgiveness that he could show Tree um, is, a, is a, a beacon of light to just enlightenment. You know, it, it takes a lot to to not be angry at somebody like that. It takes a, a whole lot of, um, if you think about it, like the time somebody's pondered 
like about life and going, you know, let that go. I mean, you're fucking dying in prison because you made a decision to back this random guy up and then now you've come to grips with like, it's all over, like let it go. And there's such uh, a beautiful story in, in this somehow. I remember asking him one time in a letter, how can you be so um, how can you be such so full of light in such a dark place? Mm. You know? And he called me on the phone and we had a conversation about it. And he said, Well, you can choose, um, you can choose to be part of the darkness. Um and it's actually more comfortable, right? Because it's um, it's the common thing for people to be bitter and dark. Um, and he said, but I think about my loved ones. I think about my family. I think about you. And he's like, even in my situation, I'm blessed. Wow. Because I have, I have love. He says, come back to love again, you know? It's like, my sisters love me. A lot of these guys don't have any love. A lot of these guys have wives, but they don't, those, their wives don't love them or they don't love their wives. He's like, he said, you came back into my life. Like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and even before I came back, he was like, um, just did not want to live um, a, a, a full of pain and anger and rage. And I think it had, and he said that um, reading helped him a lot. Um, reading um, books and and when he passed away I, I I got a lot of his property his his family kept some of his property and I got some too and then so I got his book collection <clears throat> and he has love love poems and uh, books about like uh, love letters and then he has these um, this one book called the seat of the soul it was about the evolution of the soul who wrote right? it and, hmm? who wrote seat of the soul Oh gosh, Gary. Gary, yeah. Gary Zakoff or something like yeah, that. Gary Zakoff. Yeah. That that's yes. like one of Oprah's like favorite books. Yes, yes. That was in his book collection, right? So that's this is that's the kind of uh, person that he wanted to be. You know, person full of love, person who was evolving, person who was growing. And mind you, like he did not get access to education, so this was all self-taught. Um, in Texas, if you are um, incarcerated with a detainer for deportation, you don't get access to like classes or, or, or uh, you know, school because they're like, why would we invest in you when you get out, you're going to be deported. So he was ineligible for everything. Um, so this was, you know, these were his, this was his self-taught journey. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. He's, he's, he's a, a He's a very beautiful person, which is why I fell in love with him uh, from the beginning and why I wanted to still uh, be with him. Um, And, you know, I started on my memoir writing about him, which is why I got into this whole journey in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think that what you said is very precious because in the first version of the memoir, when I finished the draft, you know, he was still around and so I'm revising it and I'm rewriting it now and I think it's 
got a bigger message. It's not just about being in a gang and growing up tough and hard and getting shot, blah, blah. Okay, so yes, those things are significant, right? But it's this um, transformation of Vu and how he transformed me. When I thought that I was yeah. made it, right? Or successful or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's a different story. And I want to shine light on you know, our Vietnamese brothers and sisters who are behind bars and the struggles of that and the tragedies that come with that. And, but why they're, you know, why, why would we see them as monsters, right? How can we humanize them? How can we show love and compassion? Um, because even if, even if you just decide that you're going to see them as monsters, they're coming back to our community. I mean, tragically, not who, but we know men, lots of men and women are coming out of prison. And what will we do with these individuals? Are we going to, they've done their time, right? Tuan did his time. Um, he's giving back to society now. I work with formerly incarcerated students every day, and they are some of the most giving, compassionate, empathetic people that I've ever worked with because they know what it was like to be rock bottom and they were shown love right it kind of goes back to my parents they showed me love you know Vu's light was because his family loved him these students feel accepted um, cared for supported um so you know I want to I want to revise you know I'm revising the book um to have a, a different type of message inspires me to think about like when you suck everything out of this vacuum of life and you know the material shit the money just you zap it out social media all of the distractions and you just like a vacuum sealed um space and if you're left with love i i, I feel like um all of the practicalities and all of the sort of the measured uh, the metrics of life and it, it can all go away if you have love in, in any situation, whether it's dark or you're happy with your life or you're not happy. But if you have love and you have the support from your family or your mom and dad or your your kids and that's at the end of the of the day. What what drives us as, as human beings and makes us stable. Um, and I think that going through life and um, having this existence where you know you just trudge along and you're just kind of like uh, every every day is happening but to to experience something that you experience with vu um although tragic it, it's like this sort of journey that allowed you to take a really good deep introspective sort of look at at, at the, the journey of love and mercy and somebody who sounds like they got a chance to become enlightened uh, in prison, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I, there's like four other topics that I thought that we would get into, you know, um, <laughs> it, it, it requires its own, uh, episode with you because sea drift is something that is massive uh, to me, uh, your project that, um, you know, the documentary project project that you produced, um, teaching your, your, your whole background in teaching and sociology is something that I'm very interested in discussing. And um, of course, there's Vala uh, and its importance in your life and my life. And I wanted to talk about all these things. 
So I think we kind of wrap it. I'm, I'm going to have to like force ourselves to kind of leave the VU topic uh, right where it's at and, and mm -hmm. kind of simmer in that uh, for the rest of the day for me. But when it comes to Seadrift, Drift, Teaching and Vala, uh, those three things I would love to talk about in equal proportions, but I think w our time is limited and um, I want to milk as much uh, uh, <laughs> conversation as I can from you. Um, so <laughs> what would you like to speak about out of those three? Sea Drift, uh, your teaching life right now, or the importance of Vala? Um, I, want, I want to take a chance. I want to take an opportunity to pitch Vala. Uh, okay. it, it's time sensitive. I want to use this platform. Um, and I can weave in the other two because of VALA. So let me talk a little about VALA, Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association. And they are a, a, a group of um, um, incredible leaders in the Orange County um, area and uh, use arts and, and letters writing uh, to empower uh, the community and to um, uh, highlight like the the cultural fabric of, of, of Vietnamese American life and and Vietnamese everywhere. So uh, we hold um, art events, um, uh, book events. Uh, we try to uh, nurture uh, aspiring artists, filmmakers. We have event um, programs uh, where we mentor youth in in artistry and photography and filmmaking. Um, and so my role is a board member, and I was brought on only a couple of years ago, but I had always gone to Avala events, and I would donate money, and, you know, like, I just loved um, the energy of, see, of being around my community, and to see us doing something other than being a doctor, a lawyer, and engineer, right? No, no hate on those folks, um, you know, y'all are doing um, great things too, uh, but there's something about the aesthetics that I think brings an, um, uh, an element of that's really important right now, which is everyone's talking about representation, right? Whether it's representation in political bodies, representation in the media, representation in storytelling, representation in, in, the, in, in our existence, right? And so I love Vala because we get to put the platforms out there for people of our communities to um, to show their rep show our representation, and um, one of our biggest events is Vit Vietnamese or Vit Film Fest, and that's uh, 12 years running now. And yeah, it's a film festival. We've had to um, you know cut it down to like virtual last year, but before that, you know, we rent out a, a theater in Orange County and showcase all these films that are. Vietnamese related, right? So they're Vietnamese directors or producers or the right. stories. Um, and, and that's coming up, right? So October 15th to October 30th, this year, 2021, we're running a Vit Film Fest uh, virtually and two uh, in-person drive-in screenings. Uh, so yeah, check out Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association uh, uh, website and Vit Film Fest. Um, it's some good stuff if you want to see the stories being told from from our community you know why and of course i know why for me but why is it important to have a vietnamese film festival in the world um you know there's there's a there's a there's a there's definitely a barrier and there are definitely um, gatekeepers in uh, the the media world, 
And if we did not host this kind of event, we wouldn't be, where would our budding emerging filmmakers go? Um, you know, these unique stories um, also give an opportunity for our community to see young people, emerging filmmakers, people like yourself and your, your, the, 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 the friends that you have in your circle in the industry, right? An opportunity to be the mentors, to be the role models, to say you can do this as a living. You can uh, 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 highlight your talents in, 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 a, in an artistic way um, and that there's value in it, right? And that there's um, real impact so we have to have a Vietnamese film festival because it's uh, it brings community together, it highlights our representation, but it gives opportunity and it um, and it gives um, young people a chance to see that uh, others like them are doing these things. So you had touched upon um, this project Sea Drift, and you're like, all right, let's just fold it into the conversation with yeah. Mala. So can you tell me your involvement with um, Sea Drift? Yeah. So in my teaching, you know, I chose sociology, and when I was in graduate school or even in undergrad, my teachers were like very encouraging about me studying our own community, my own community. Um, you know, I remember going to class, and there were no other Vietnamese taking like you know, that were sociology majors or psychology or even history, right? I have one friend who's a historian, Vietnamese American historian in Texas. So it's him and me, that's it, right? Like during our yeah. generation. Um, and I'm gonna have you bring him on the show, he's cool. So- I'd love to meet him. Uh, so we, um, you know, so I, I was, I had this whole history of our people, our community in Texas to write about. So I wrote about nail salons. I wrote about the fishermen and the shrimpers because that was such a significance in, in the number of people who were doing that type of work. And it had to do with like immigrant assimilation and economic assimilation and these sociological things. But then as I would uncover more of the story, there were a lot of bias, discrimination, racism. So Sea Drift was a, a, a part of the research about Vietnamese shrimpers in Texas and the, the racism that, that existed and the racial tensions, but also the labor tensions that were happening in all of the Gulf Coast towns, all these little towns where Vietnamese were moving to, to become fishers and shrimpers and crabbers. And I've written about it. Um, this one particular incident in Sea Drift was, uh, was important to the history because um, the tension led to like violence. Um, there was a shooting, someone was killed. Vietnamese um, a refugee killed a, the, the, a white man and it became this racial tension. The KKK came to town. Um, there was a lawsuit, uh, like there were boat burnings. Um, and so I'd written about that and, and the filmmaker, uh, Taiwanese American came across the story and he's like, oh my God, I had never, I'd studied Asian American history. I studied, I took classes in Asian American experience and I'd never heard of this mm -hmm. event. And it was such a major event to hear like the KKK going after Vietnamese and then the Vietnamese fighting back, right? Um, and so he reached out to me and he's like, I wanna make a documentary about this. I was like, hmm, that's cool. You know, I was like busy in my, my, my teaching life. And so I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, whatever you need me from me. And so because he's Taiwanese American, he did need a lot of access, uh, right. language, interpretation, 
just rapport with the Vietnamese people in the community who experienced it 30 years ago and really weren't really willing to talk about it. Um, and he asked me, he's like, how did you get them to talk about it? And I said, well, I went down there and I was like, oh, I'm a student and I need this for a school project. And they're like, oh, okay, school? Yes, I'll tell you everything, right? <laughs> he's like, can you kind of do the same thing? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, oh, my school project is going to be a movie. Can you like talk to this man, you know? And he, eventually my dad got involved. He became an interpreter because he was the same age as some of these um, people now. So uh, it became like a little family project, but it, it became this film, uh, came out in 2019. It got a lot of good recognition. Um, it's been through the festivals and, and then it was um, a highlight for me to have it shown at Vit Film Fest in 2019, so. Wow, wow. full circle. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what is the life of a movie like that? What what happens to it? it? Does it go away? I mean, how does it live and how do we see it? Um, so it, it, it's currently, um, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can watch it on iTunes. Um, so uh, they're streaming. It was on PBS um, in 2020, I think. And then last year, last year uh, or earlier this year during the um, AAPI hate um, um, incidences and the Stop Asian Hate, they featured it for a month for free on PBS. So, you know, there's like access to it. Um, people have still, you know, people still contact us now to like have us give talks. People are showing it at schools. People are showing it at um, community events. Um, the city of Fort Worth had just recently showed it uh, over the summer for their cultural series. Um, next Tuesday, I'm, I'm giving a talk to the Security and Exchange Commission about Sea uh, Drift and about being Vietnamese in Texas. So uh, there's, um, I think a lot of people, um, want to talk about what happened and, and where we are now because of refugees, racism, how do you reconcile, you know, how do you, how do communities forgive and for, or like heal, right, from those incidences and what can we learn from them? And I think that's the message from the story, from, from the film. So random, the SEC, like people from the Yeah, SEC. Security and Exchange Commission. And I'm like, what why are you interested? And they're yeah, like, well, we do a cultural we do a cultural series every month, like a series of cultural talks every month. And last month they had somebody, a professor come talk about the Tulsa massacre massacre mm -hmm. in, in uh, Wall Street, uh, you know, Black Wall Street. And he's like, and so the director of the Southern District of the SEC, he's in Dallas and he said, oh, I came across Sea Drift. I thought it was so interesting. And, you know, I wanted to put this on as the cultural event for this month. So it's going to be recorded and, or it's going to be on Zoom. And uh, I guess they're showing it throughout the SEC offices, you know, like for employees to watch wow. and stuff. So it's a good way. And, and it, so come back full circle of like representation, right? Like how else will these folks hear our stories if we're not putting them out and putting them in film? I wrote the book. I wrote the chapter in the book like in 2007, Ken. So it's been out there, but nobody reads academic books you know mm -hmm. um except other academics so it wasn't until tim Tsai made the film that now more and more more people are hearing it which is why i'm so committed to writing this book too this memoir because all my life i've been writing like academic work and i think it's time to put something in a little bit more public space like public writing i have to make a decision all the time about who what 
what guests we bring on and and yada 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 like there's that decision all the time you know move heavily into pop culture move heavily into you know there's so many different angles you know business podcasts and all but one thing that is very very underserved and i need help here is the vietnamese academics all around the world because mm. what i'm learning now after talking to you kimberly k um a lot of professors have um books or movies that they are putting out um we need to just continue amplifying this perspective which is our perspective and making it normalized so then by the time you know my children these young kids grow up it is completely normal uh to be vietnamese without the conversation about war Mm. Right. Mm. We're, we're like this own existing group of like powerful Southeast Asian Vietnamese uh, group that it's just like we're normalized into a culture of uh, whatever we're known for, whatever we're proud of. And we're just human beings. I mean, we're, I mean, there was like some difference between like you know, all of the little nuances, but at the same time, we should be just normal. We should just be able to come to the stage, the world stage and have our, you know, we have our, our films, we have our entertainment, just like the Korean culture, just like the American culture, free from like this trauma or mm -hmm. talk of war. And I think that's mm -hmm. sort of, I would love to hear more um, academics uh, talk about their research and talk about their work and, um, you know, the, the the historian that you know, I, I'm very curious about bringing on um, academics uh, in PhDs that talk and write about different aspects of, of Vietnamese uh, global history. Will do. I know a lot of them. <laughs> There's only a few of us, though. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. And um, okay. I, I want to thank you for spending time and, um, you know, what sounds to be a difficult thing to talk about, but you've managed to articulate your story with Vu in such a beautiful and eloquent way. Oh, thank you. Hopefully I can write it in the same way. <laughs> I have no, um, no doubt that you'll, you'll knock that out of the park. <laughs> thank you. And I look forward to it. I mean, once you're done with the book, we can get back on and, and talk about, you know, the journey of, of putting that together. Awesome. Thank you. I better get on it. I better hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We look forward to Thank it. You, Thanks Kenneth. again. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.